Awesome. Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, welcome to the people that are new here. Really happy that you joined us. Um, so tonight with my raspy voice, I have a little bit of a cold, the end of a cold. Um, we're going to talk about step five and mostly we're going to be looking at the AA 12 and 12. Um, but I'll be a little bit back and forth. And I think, you know, I want to start off with um, the promises associated with step five, because I think it's a great way to kind of open it up. Um, so once we've taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. Okay, so that's a promise that you're going to feel delighted. We can look the world in the eye. Imagine that, being able to make eye contact with anybody in the world. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. And I just love that, that they're, the idea is that they just kind of fall away right from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. And that's probably the the most powerful thing. And, you know, and so that you're not even halfway through the steps and you're already feeling God close with you, the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And, you know, that is, uh, that's the, um, you know, that that's the step 12, right? Having had a spiritual, right? awakening, having had a spiritual experience, but we actually begin to have this experience that we go from a belief to something where we're actually feeling it and experiencing it. And that the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared, or for us, the food problem has disappeared will often come strongly. So maybe not all the time, but oftentimes people will really feel like the desire to eat compulsively, the desire to eat food that's not on their food plan just goes away. Um, we feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So we really feel like we're part of this community, part of this worldwide community where we have, you know, our hand in God's hand, right? With the spirit of the universe. Um, and so step five, you know, in the, also in the AA 12 and 12, it kind of breaks it down and it really matches up with these promises. That step five promises us one, sobriety. Two, kinship with man. Three, feeling authentically ourselves. Four, forgiveness of ourselves and others, five, humility, six, peace of mind and serenity, and seven, feeling the presence of God. Pretty good stuff, right? <laughs> it should make people want, like when I read that, it's like, of course I'm going to want to do a fifth step. Of course I'm going to want to take that step. So step five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And, you know, it says on page 55, 
that when it comes to ego deflation, few steps are harder to take than five. But scarcely any step is more necessary to long-term sobriety and peace of mind than this one. So step five, right? Number one, it gives us sobriety. And at this point, you know, when you do your fifth step, the food is, right? You've been abstinent, food is down, you're working the steps, you've taken up, you know, you've taken your second step, you've taken your third step, you've done your inventory, and now you're bringing it to another human, right? You're going to look at it before God, yourself, and another human being. And at this point, you know, it becomes painfully clear that we will have no long-term recovery unless we have serenity and peace of mind, right? That just abstinence alone does not make us serene, and it certainly doesn't give us a peace of mind. My inventory for me brought to the front of my mind all the resentments, fears, and harms. And without step five, you know, I was going to be forever owned by those skeletons. Like, unless I shared it, I was going to walk around the rest of my life feeling the weight of that. Um, you know, and I, I found for myself that especially being abstinent, working the steps, looking at all these things, it, I wanted to get rid of it. I longed to have a place that I could sort of dump it off, let it go. Um, you know, the denial gets busted away. And now we have to live with the awful truth of whatever it was that we blotted out by food and behaviors, right? Like all those awful things I had spent a lot of time blotting out, right? And we're told about that, that we blot out like the in the like the the intolerance of of the blot out the consciousness of this intolerable situation. And so my inventory really had me come face to face with what was my intolerable situation. And basically it was me. It was my experience, how I was experiencing life was intolerable. Um, you know, we cannot live alone, it says, with our pressing problems. Then the need to quit living by ourselves with those tormenting ghosts of yesterday get more urgent than ever. We have to talk to somebody about it. And, you know, in recovery, um, we come to see that we're cut off from our honest self that we're cut off from God's purpose for ourselves and from fellow man. And, you know, addicts live in isolation. I did. I lived in isolation, often right in the middle of a family, right in the middle of a crowd, we could feel alone. And, you know, um, that really was my experience. I grew up in a large family, tons of, you know, siblings and nieces and nephews and cousins and aunts and I could walk into a room and feel alone, even though there were tons of people there. Um, so in step five, we're going to get entirely honest with another human. And in fact, it's urgent that we quit living cut off from others, right? It becomes really important for us. In the bottom of page 55, it says, we search for an easier way 
which usually consists of the general and fairly painless admission that when drinking, we were sometimes bad. We were sometimes bad actors. And then for good measure, we add dramatic description of that part of our drinking behavior, which our friends probably know about anyway. So it's not uncommon for people to say things like, oh, oh, when I was in the food, I was, I was terrible. You know, my behavior was terrible when I was in the food. You know, I, I stole candy. I ate food that didn't belong to me. Or I threw out things that my family wanted to eat because I couldn't handle having it around the house. And like mm, our inventory usually requires a lot more deeper digging than just that. That's like, that's like, yeah, of course, of course you did because you were living, you were living in boundaries of food. So of course you did that, but that's not generally the depth of our inventory, right? And it says, but of the things which really bother and burn us, we say nothing, right? The, the real stuff we don't want to talk about. Certain distressing or humiliating memories we tell ourselves ought not to be shared with anyone. These will remain our secret. Not a soul must ever know. We hope they'll go to the grave with us, right? And I think that this disease loves secrets. You know, it's the, shh, don't tell anybody. It's between you and I kind of thing that the disease kind of would whisper and it would leave me like right for eating. It would just cut me off from other people and leave me wide open to eat. You know, so our fifth step is not merely an account of the harm we did in direct relation to the food. Rather, it's the things that had almost nothing to do with the food itself, or so we thought, right? The really painful and embarrassing events are the ones that need to be shared. Why? Why do we need to share them? Because holding back on step five will cause us to eat. It will cause you to eat if you hold certain secrets back. Page 56, some people are unable to stay sober at all and others will relapse periodically until they really clean house. So if you partially clean your house, you might either not be able to stay abstinent and sober or eat on your food plan at all, or you're gonna be able to do it for little bursts of time and then go back out again, right? Little bursts of time, but so long as you're clinging to those secrets, you will have no long lasting sobriety or abstinence. If you carry the load alone, it says here, you'll suffer irritability, anxiety, or remorse and depression. And walking around for me, irritable, anxious, remorseful, and depressed makes me very hungry, right? That's, that's exactly the kind of stuff that would make food. You know, I've heard it say food looks like a step up. It looks like it's a good option at that point. You know, we know that the way we experience irritations, anxieties, regrets, and depression cause us to relapse. And But it's not the circumstances that attribute to those irritations. That's not what it is. So while we know today that our problems 
are not actually our bosses or our mother-in-laws or our spouses, but it is our reaction. It is our responses to our bosses, to our mother-in-laws, to our spouses. You know, in order to get a new way to respond and react, we need a fifth step. And without a fifth step, we'll be living in a state where the only relief will come in the form of food. You know, and I, I, you know, in the big book, it says, you know, having made our personal inventory, right? So you got this personal inventory. What are you going to do about it? Now? What shall you do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. So the mission of my step five is to get an attitude adjustment, is to change my attitude so that I'm not owned by the irritations of my boss, of my mother-in-law, of my spouse, of the world's problems, of my neighbors. But it's so that I can change my own attitude about those things. That's really the purpose. Um, page 56 through 57, the bottom, it says, and this is in the AA 12 and 12, most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. So, you know, oftentimes willingness gets, it gets this idea that it's uh, not really important. But willingness is essential. And here's one place that, that it's telling us, willing to try this, willing to try getting entirely honest with other people. You know, and this is exactly what most of us came here for. I needed a God to expel, to force out the destruction of my obsession with food. I didn't need a better food plan. I had, by the way, when I first came into Overeaters Anonymous in my early 20s, I got an amazing food plan. And it's pretty close to the same one I use today. It's not so different. But that wasn't enough. That is not enough. I didn't come back then looking for new friends, you know, looking for a community of people to hang with on a Monday night. I had no idea what I was missing. I came here because I could not keep myself from destroying myself. That's why I came here. That I had a great food plan and I couldn't follow it. That's a big problem. When you know what you're supposed to eat and you know what you're not supposed to eat and somehow you can't summon enough power to follow it. That's really what I came here for. In my early times in OA, I did not fearlessly admit anything. Here's what I did. I blamed, I judged, I complained, and I ate, right? Those things led me right to eating. So number two, step five gives us kinship with man. Page 57, what are we likely to receive from step five? For one thing, we shall get rid of that terrible sense of isolation we've always had. 
almost without exception, alcoholics are tortured by loneliness. That experience of me feeling all alone in a room filled with people who loved me, I've heard that echoed again and again and again. This seems to be a very common shared experience. We're tortured by loneliness. Even before our drinking got bad and people began to cut us off, nearly all of us suffered the feeling that we didn't quite belong, right? Most of us, most people, when I speak to them, they will share that their early memories are a feeling different, a feeling separate, a feeling that they didn't fit. Either we were shy or we were apt to be noisy, craving attention and companionship, but never getting it. There was this mysterious barrier. That's what it says here. There was a mysterious barrier. And, you know, it brings me back to something that I, I used to say, you know, I, I used to say all the time, um, I just, I can't get this. I can't get this. I'm not getting this. Can't get this. I, and I wondered why it was that I couldn't get it on my own. I kept saying like, I, I just can't get this on my own. And, you know, why couldn't I get this on my own? Because I was never meant to get it on my own. That's why we couldn't do it alone. Um, it's the spiritual program of action is not an independent study course. It's not something you take and do, right? And bring it alone for just you. It's meant to be done together. The loneliness, the isolation, it's a common characteristic that so many of us have lived with, right? Being in a crowd, feeling all alone, people, genuinely loved me and I always felt like I wasn't getting enough attention from them. You know, I was the one, it says like making noise, that was me. I was constantly like trying to get attention from the people around me. It never felt like it was enough. And then the other thing I would do was when that didn't work, I would pout. I would get that pouty face on again, trying so hard to get extra attention. And I don't believe it was because I wasn't attended to. I think it's my selfishness that I, my selfish need to feel important, to feel wanted, to feel needed was that was like sucked all the oxygen out of the room, you know? Um, and when I was sitting there pouting, I was internally criticizing other people, you know? So it was, I was either hijacking conversation by being overly dramatic or sitting there pouting, hoping to get somebody to notice that I could manipulate them into like saying, what's the matter? What's the matter, honey? You know, and, and either way, I still felt all alone. Like even when I got, what's the matter? It never, it didn't, it was like a, bottomless pit, just like the hunger, just could never satisfy me. So step five gives us the ability. Now, number three, step five gives us the ability to be our authentic selves. Page 57, halfway through the first paragraph, it says, 
It was as if we were mere actors on a stage, suddenly realizing that we did not know a single line of our parts, right? To be in that predicament where it's like, I was always taking the temperature of the room so that I could give the people what I thought they wanted. And then here I was, I don't know what they want. I don't know what to say, right? And that's another common feeling that many of us have. It's as if we're imposters. I hear that a lot, walking around with that imposter syndrome, faking our way through life. And, you know, I often felt like the rest of the world got a manual for living. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do in order to live. And somehow I was overlooked and I never got it. It was almost like I was, you know, I would say it's like this. I'm not a great math student, but it would be like, I would be feel like I was missing two weeks of math class. And now I'm showing up trying to figure out what they're working on. And and that's that's what it felt like oftentimes that, you know, and what I came to see was that I had been spending much of my life trying to convince others that I was somewhat better than I believed myself to be. I didn't believe myself to be good enough. So I had to pay a lot of focus on getting to make sure that you believed I was good enough, that I was okay. You know, and I would say here before I really took the step five thoroughly, I was the president of the public, public relations firm for Melissa. That was my job, PR for me. And, you know, in my heart, I felt like I had to try to sell you on what I believed was the worst product in the world. Like I wanted you to buy something, you know, basically like me. And I really didn't feel like I was even likable. You know, my fifth step was when I finally got honest and I stopped worrying so much about my reputation and I started caring more about my integrity. Because in my fifth step, what happened was I just wanted to be right with God first. And when my motivation is to be right with God first, to clear it up with God first, what others think about me becomes less important, right? It's always my integrity over my reputation. You know, I did see, though, that there were things about me that truly needed to change. And they needed to change because they were obstacles in the path for me to have a relationship, not necessarily with other people, but with God. That I needed God to intervene on my behalf with the food. I needed to have a relationship with God. And I couldn't because there were stumbling blocks in the path. And that's really where my focus began in step five. You know, I knew here I was, I was a person who knew stealing was wrong and I wanted to live a certain way, right? I knew certain behaviors, certain things I had been doing were wrong, but I was so enslaved by the food that I just could not live in agreement with my own moral code, right? Addicts know right from wrong, most of them. They just can't abide by it. They just have a hard time living in agreement with right and wrong, but they know it, you know? I had a moral code. I just couldn't follow it myself. 
you know, I would, I would steal candy from colleagues. I would steal candy from my kids. I wanted to be a loving and caring friend. I knew that that was important. And yet I would cancel on friends at the last minute, never considering how it made them feel. Basically, if I felt fat on a particular day, I wasn't showing up. If I ate too much or I wanted to eat more than I wanted to show up, I didn't show up. You know, if I couldn't find anything that fit in my closet, and I was concerned about what you were going to think about how I looked, I didn't show up. You know, one of the extremely painful memories is missing a friend's funeral. You know, I missed a friend's funeral because I was so concerned with how much weight I gained. And I didn't want, here's the crazy thing. I didn't want her siblings, you know, the direct mourners. I didn't want her siblings to see how fat I'd gotten. I was concerned that they were going to be, I don't know, looking at me. And um, that's a horrible way to live. Like that to not even be able to show up for people who are mourning because you're so concerned with yourself. And, you know, um, being at an event with a friend, you know, being at dinner with a friend and she's, and you know, her marriage is ending and I can't even care. I can't even somehow summon up the desire to care because I'm more concerned with myself in that moment. You know, I, I wanted to care. I knew caring was what I wanted to be like, but I couldn't. I just couldn't seem to get to that part of me. And for me, I think that's what it means to be an addict. That somehow underneath there, you know that there's this heart. It's there, but you just can't seem to summon it. You know, I was terrified that if someone could read my mind, they would be horrified by what a liar I was. Because I put on a face that was very different from what was going on in here. You know, on the bottom of page 57, it says this. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and with God. So number four now, what does step five give us? It gives us forgiveness for ourselves and for others. Page 57 through 58 says, this vital step was also the means by which we began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought or done. Often it was while working on this step with our sponsors or spiritual advisors that we first felt truly able to forgive others no matter how deeply we felt they had wronged us. When we resolutely tackled step five, that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it. And, um, you know, that's something I'm going to, I want to come back to that idea of forgiveness that we could feel it, receive it and give it. Um, okay. Number five. Now step five gives us humility. And I love the definition in, a, in the AA 12 and 12 how it defines humility, because humility for me got a bad rap. I thought humility meant like, I don't know, like um, pretend that you're not as great as you know you are. 
that's what I thought humility meant. Like, I'll just pretend so that other people, really basic, other people like me, I won't brag, right? And that's not humility. <laughs> it's like the opposite of humility. Um, page 58 says this, humility is a word often misunderstood. To those who have made progress in AA, it amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. I love that. That's like, we're just gonna take a sip of water. Um, so, you know, in step five, we share our inventories so that we can get help identifying who we are, what we are, what's our defects, what's our grosser problems, what's our bigger handicaps. And it's not so that we feel like worthless pieces of trash. That's not the point of it. You know, but so that we can strive to be who God intended us to be. First, I got to get real about what's here so that I can see what it is that God would have me be. And why can't we do this on our own? Like, why can't I just do this on my own all by myself? Let me just get honest with myself. And do we really need another person to do this? Um isn't it enough that we humble ourselves before God? Like, shouldn't that be enough, you know? But we're told that we must involve another person. Page 59 says this, hence it was most evident that a solitary self-appraisal and the admission of our defects based upon that alone wouldn't be nearly enough. We'd have to have outside help if we were surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves, the help of God and another human being. You know, the big book warns us that we find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. You know, because when I'm praising something all on my own, I run the risk of giving value to something that really has no value. You know, I think when I'm alone with an inventory, what might likely happen is I give reasons, justifications, excuses, why I'm entitled to be upset with that person, why I'm entitled to be afraid, why I'm entitled to have caused that harm. And on my own, you know, the voice that's like checking me is my own and it's gonna agree with me. I run the risk of my voice saying, yeah, they did far worse to you. They deserve that, right? Or or you should be upset with them, don't you know? And if you're not, you're gonna be like a doormat or you, know, you ought to be afraid of that. You're entitled to be afraid. Page 60 says this, until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. So I can't really clean the house in reality unless I bring it in front of another person. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we have been honest with ourselves and with God. It's a confirmation that, yep, I've been honest. Here it is. You know, I think, that idea of solitary self-appraisal, you know, um, I had had it 
explained to me one time that if you're going to get your home appraised, you don't appraise it yourself because you have sentiment attached. You have emotions attached to every room in that house. Just like I have emotions attached to most of my resentments. And, you know, like I would look at my bathroom and I would say, oh, this is where I bathe the kids. And I remember this or you know, you, you sort of bring in all these emotions with it. But an appraiser is going to come in and say that tub is outdated. You know, you need you need to update that bathroom. Those faucets are broken. It's very different. You know, we tell ourselves lots of stories, reasons, and justifications. And another person coming in who really understands what it is we're driving for, which is which is an attitude a change. It's an attitude adjustment. So that other person is coming in with an eye on getting you to change your attitude, getting you to change the way that you perceive the way that those things happened. And, you know, I think when, when you're taking someone's inventory and having done it now thank god many times it's just an incredible gift to get to do it with people um i've gotten better at not worrying so much that they're going to feel like i don't like them because i think initially when people give you their inventory there's this kind of at least for me there was this i had this kind of idea that in order to be my friend, you have to agree with me. You have to side with me. But a real friendship, a real kinship is someone who's going to help you get humility and honest admission of who and what you are and a sincere desire to be better. So when we're looking at someone's inventory together, like they don't have to convince me to be their friend. I'm already your friend. I'm sitting here spending hours with you. Don't worry, we're good. Right. And it's not even about that. It's first and foremost getting right with God. So our mission, you know, is not to agree with them on their, of course, it's to be compassionate, you know, but it's really to help them have a change in attitude. That's really the mission here, you know. And page 60 says we're, and we're warned about going it alone. Going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. It's worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. And that starts right in our inventory, right? Um, and that carries on throughout recovery. You know, in the beginning, it's suggested that a sponsee discusses decisions with their sponsors. It's a good practice. And it's something we continue to practice today still, many of us. We don't make these big decisions in isolation. Many of us share our nightly reviews. We have two-way prayer partners. You know, there's all sorts of ways that people work this practice continuing forever. You know, if I get something that's like an inspired notion i'm gonna run it past someone who knows me well someone who knows like what my defects are knows where i'm more likely to fall off course who understands my patterns of behavior 
who has a full working knowledge of my defects. You know, and we're also given further information on who we should confide in, right? Page 61 says, we shall want to speak with someone who's experienced, who not only has stayed dry, but has been able to surmount other serious difficulties. So you're going to want to have someone who's recovered, who's worked the steps. You're not going to give your inventory to someone who has not worked all 12 steps, who's recovered. You know, um, and it's great if you can find someone who has difficulties, perhaps like your own. You know, page 62 says, before long, your listener may well tell a story or two about himself, which will place you even more at ease. And so, you know, it's pretty clear that you want someone with sobriety who has had problems themselves. It's been helpful if there are some shared experiences. And so the sponsor or advisor can offer their own personal examples. This is why I believe, you know, it is crucial that there is a friendship between a sponsor and a sponsee because the sponsor sharing details about themselves too. In my experience with step five is both the sponsee and the sponsor. There's a pattern that begins to emerge when you sit with someone, you start seeing a pattern. And it's almost as if we each have our own one or two main themes that run through our lives. And they kind of get repeated. You know, every one of my resentments and fears, as I went through them, they all almost start to sound the same. They all start to look the same, sound the same. You know, I would say that it's like, it's like binge watching Law and Order, right? You watch about two or three episodes, it's the same damn story. It's just a new cast of characters. You just keep casting a new guest star. And that's sort of what my inventory started to look like. I had a couple of big running themes. They said, for me, it was victim. I'm the victim of other people. And I just kept recasting new people in that, my perceived you know, perception of me being victimized. Um, and, you know, an experienced guide who has lived these situations can see the patterns. And if there's a trusting bond, can gently but firmly move the fellow from self-pity or self-righteous indignation towards taking responsibility, right? That's really what we're supposed to do. That's the shift in the attitude. Steps, uh, step five, this is number six, gives us peace of mind and serenity. Page 62 says the damned up emotions of years break out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. As the pain subsides, healing tranquility takes place. And when humility and serenity are so combined, something else of great moment is apt to occur. So what is it that occurs now? Well, here it is. Number seven, step five gives us a connection with our higher power. And we experience the feeling of the presence of God, right? We get peace of mind, serenity, and then we feel a connection with God. Page 62, many in AA, once agnostic or atheist, 
tells us that it was during this stage of step five that he first actually felt the presence of God. And even those who had faith already often became conscious of God as they never were before. And that was my experience with step five. For me, I had a part of my story. You know, I, I've shared that I suffered some really terrible losses and I was really mad about these losses and I felt victimized. And I felt that the people in my life did not show up the way that they should have. I had a, I had a, a way that they were supposed to show up for me when I was going through these losses. And but the truth is, is I had a lot of guilt. There were things I did that I felt responsible, real or imagined. You know, there were things that I thought attributed to the losses. And what happened to me was that I reached a point where I just had to be honest and share the whole story with someone. Because before that, I was one of those that I could get bursts of recovery, but I couldn't stay for long. It wasn't until I finally said the thing that I was holding in my heart, the guilt that I was feeling, I needed to say it out loud. And when I finally said it, you know, for me, I sat upstairs in, in a, there's a church in Cornwall, actual real Cornwall, New York, that I sat upstairs in the church with my sponsor and I told, I finally told the whole story. I was just like, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to hold on to my sobriety with food. I wasn't going to be able to hold on to my recovery. And I just, I just wanted it out already. And I told her everything, all the shame that I'd been dragging around. And really what happened for me was my sponsor looked at me. We had had a friendship, a relationship. And she looked at me with the most loving eyes. And I knew, I knew she wasn't God. But I felt God looking at me through her. I had a spiritual experience in that moment. She looked at me and she reassured me that she just got a sense that I was forgiven. She just said, Melissa, I really feel like God forgives you. And, and I felt like God used her that day to deliver a message to me. I knew that I was forgiven. And when I felt that forgiveness... I instantly felt forgiveness for all the people that I had believed owed me something, that they hadn't done something right by me. And really what happened was I had this, you know, experience where the trees looked different. I looked up at the sky and it's crazy because I, I know that other people had that exact same visual experience. I looked up at the sky and it looked, I could see the trees against the blue of the sky and it was sharp, distinct, different, truly like I had a pair of glasses on that I had never worn before. And, you know, what happened for me was in that moment, God opened up my eyes and I saw what wasn't the truth. And what wasn't the truth was that the people who I believed didn't show up for me, that wasn't true, they did. They did. They called me just as much as they could have. They said whatever they thought they needed to say. You know, I, I 
for me, we lost a baby and I felt like nobody could say the right thing to me because nobody could, but everyone did the best they could. And I saw it in that moment. And I, you know, and in that moment, I also remembered that my siblings who I had been angry at, really I'd been angry at because they had a lot of children themselves. That was the truth. That I was jealous. I was angry and jealous. And I felt like they didn't show up for me. But in that moment, I suddenly had this remembrance that, you know, I showed up for my baby's funeral. I never made one arrangement for it. I just showed up that day. My siblings took care of every piece of it, but I couldn't remember it until I felt forgiveness for my own actions. You know, I friends that I thought didn't show up for me, I like suddenly remembered that these were the friends that came and put food in my house, you know, that took care of my other child, that spent time talking to my husband, that gave him support because I wasn't available for him. I remembered that too. Like, wait a second. I wasn't showing up for my husband either. You know, I was, I was ignoring his needs. I was so focused on my own. You know, I wasn't able to feel anyone else's grief but me. And when I had that realization, this attitude change, that was the change in the attitude, my resentments began to slip away. You know, and what else happened for me that day was I knew I would never have to use food again. Like that feeling that the food problem was removed, it came strongly. It really did. And I felt, you know, the nearness of my creator. I felt like I had a relationship with God that I wanted to pursue at all costs. I felt in that moment, I was like, I knew there were harms I did. And I was like, I don't care. I will clean that up because I just want this relationship with God. And, you know, the incredible thing for me is that that miracle that I felt for myself, um, I actually feel that again and again, every time I take a fifth step with someone, it is a lot of work when you take a fifth step, when you spend the greater part of your Saturday with somebody, but the, the payback not just for the person, but for me is, is incredible. I actually get to feel the nearness of my creator and I get to be a part of a miracle in someone else's life. And that really is, you know, that's what we believe. We believe that God launches search and rescue missions for addicts like us. And that if you have had a deep and effective spiritual experience where God has entered your heart, and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous, you want, you want to participate in that kind of miraculous experience. And so um, with that, I will pass.